Good morning. Just gonna show you this real quick. The tech team keeps punking me with Cub stuff. Just cause I'm a White Sox fan, so now I have to preach with this up here. But it's good, cause we're gonna be talking about putting your faith in the wrong things today. So it's, it's gonna be great, guys. Very excited for this morning. It's Palm Sunday, and so I wanna talk about it. I'm gonna give you a heads up. I'm gonna start by, by just explaining a little bit about Palm Sunday. We're gonna get to that. And then you're gonna feel like this message, message transitions, and it does. We're gonna look at the passage immediately after Palm Sunday about what happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, because there's some really important implications for us there too. So as we go, that's kind of where we're headed this morning, but let's start here. When I was about 11, uh, I attended this church, and this church at that particular time didn't meet on this property. It met at Ina and La Choya on the southwest corner. There's a Walgreens there. Now, every time I've ever been in that Walgreens now, I just like laugh to myself thinking everybody's refilling their medical prescriptions in the place that I used to attend church. You know, what a strange, what a strange thing. I remember one particular Sunday on the old site, uh, I was in youth ministry at that point in time, I was 11, and they let us out early, but not to just go anywhere. They said, we're gonna go do this special thing. It's Palm Sunday. I didn't know what that meant. I'd never heard anything about Palm Sunday. I had no clue what that even was, or maybe I had, I'd just forgotten it all. This is my first Palm Sunday memory. And they said, all right, we're gonna go and walk over to the, to the sanctuary, the auditorium, whatever you wanna call it, the main, we called it big church, right? The like main room where everybody's having church right now. So all the students walked over and they handed us these palm fronds, these little tiny palm fronds as we went. And then they got us to all form in this like line and there, we formed like a, like a parade almost, right? Where we were in a line facing other people who were in a line and there was a gap between us and we all had palm fronds. And it wasn't just students, it was children's ministry and adults ministry and like all, everybody who was waiting for church, like this big, massive group of people all in a line forming this thing with each other, all holding palm fronds. And they're standing there and they go, okay, so in a moment, I want you to chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I just remember being like, what? Because I don't know what that is. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with that. And then sure, sure enough, there's this weird moment that happens where all of a sudden this man in like full fake beard, uh, who is like, like quintessential fake Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like he's wearing the big robe with the red sash and he's got the fake beard complete with Birkenstock looking sandals. And he's riding upon what I think was a donkey, like maybe a small pony. I'm not quite sure what it was. And he starts riding down the middle of this and we're all supposed, everyone around me starts waving their palm fronds and just going, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just like what I'm doing right now, just like that. And I remember standing there with my palm frog being like, and I think it was the very first moment that I found myself stepping back being like, am I in a cult? <laughs> like, am I, this is weird. You could see us from Ina Road. Ina Road, we're really busy at the time. Like you can see us from there and, and we're all just standing there. I'm 11 wondering like which of my friends are driving by being like, hey, there's Ryan waving palms at a man on a donkey dressed like what? So weird. I have all these moments from growing up in church that if you've been in churches long enough are normal, but they're not. They're weird. They are. They're things that we do because we're like, isn't that cool? And we celebrate these moments or we do these things. But I have all these experiences where I find myself looking at that. And I remember at the time going through this going like, this is weird what I'm a part of. And do I really want this for my, like, well, I'm like, get it. I'm a kid now. So I do what I'm told, but do I want this someday? waving my palm front. Like, is this really the thing that's gonna stick with me? Is this really what it is? And I know I'm talking about a weird moment on Palm Sunday, but I actually have this in so many different moments where there's this thing that I've been a part of and at times it kind of felt like I was gonna outgrow it 
or like I, I needed it for a moment, and this was good for a moment, but I wonder if it was going to stick with me for the long haul. And this isn't just young people, by the way. I hear adults talk about this kind of thing all the time. For me, this started with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was weird. I'm going to be really honest with you. I still think Palm Sunday is a little weird. Don't freak out. I'll tell you why in just a little bit. But right now, what I want to do is I want to walk through this idea of Palm Sunday because it's here. We're celebrating it today. And and I want to be real clear about it because I'm not going to take for granted. Everybody just knows what that thing is. And then I promise I'll tell you what I think is a little strange about it even still for me today. See, Palm Sunday begins what in Christianity is referred to as Holy Week, right? One Sunday from now is Easter Sunday. And so there's this week. It begins with Palm Sunday and it ends on Easter. It's called Holy Week. And Palm Sunday is the beginning of it. It marks this moment in the first century when Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last time. And he comes riding in on a donkey. And this was really significant because everybody in the first century who would have been a Jewish person living in Jerusalem at that particular point in time would have had this messianic prophecy, right? This this thing in the scriptures that they had grown up hearing about that was in their heads. It was Zechariah chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. I want to read it to you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then catch this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Israelites grew up hearing this message. Everybody would have known this, that at one point in time, a Messiah is going to come, a deliverer is going to come. And a key signal based on the passage that we just read was what? He would arrive riding upon the foal of a donkey. So, This is like this massive symbolic moment. Your king's going to ride upon the foal of a donkey and what's going to happen when he gets here? It says you won't need any instruments of war ever again because he's going to go and do what? Speak peace to the nations. So this humble king's going to come in and set the world straight. And there's going to be this everlasting peace. He's going to rule forever on the throne of David, who is Israel's most famous king. So this descent of David is supposed to come and they're all waiting for this particular thing to happen. That's the prophecy back to Jesus in the first century. When Jesus shows up into Jerusalem to begin Holy Week, he tells his disciples, I want you to go into the town and I want you to find me the foal of a donkey and I want you to bring it to me. And if they ask questions, just tell them the Lord has use of it, which is my favorite expression ever. If you ever just need something from somebody, just say that to them and see what happens. I think it's funny. I don't know, apparently it worked. The Lord has use of it and they give him the donkey and he goes and he gets on top of this thing and he goes riding into Jerusalem. Think how symbolic this was. Think how significant. We look and we're like, how humble of Jesus that he rode in on a donkey, you know, and that's all he had. Or we tell ourselves stories, but no, this is an incredibly strategic moment by Jesus Christ where he says, go get the full, he says, go get the full of a donkey. I know what Zechariah says, we're doing this. Let's let everybody know who I am. And he comes riding in on this donkey. And it's no surprise that all the people begin to go nuts. They form the parade line. And he comes riding through. They take off their cloaks, which were dear to them, and they lay it at his feet so that the donkey can walk over it. And they lay palm fronds across the road, and they all begin chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We read this in Mark chapter 11, beginning verse 9. And those who went before and those who, were shout, who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, the thing that they're chanting is also specific. It's not from Zechariah. It's from a Messianic prophecy in Psalm 118 that talks about how one day there's going to be a king who comes and his rule will be forever. And it says, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this Hosanna moment. So they're chanting this very specific thing, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. A declaration that you are our savior, you are our hope. We are celebrating the king has come. Hope has arrived on our doorstep. Let's do this. And this was a really big deal because the people at the time were oppressed by the Romans. So they weren't allowed to select their own king. They weren't allowed to have their own like rulers and different things. And it's because they'd had several revolts leading up to this point. And so Rome with a heavy hand had said, no, nah, you can't do that anymore. I'm gonna make sure that any king that gets put in place is a puppet king that, we, that serves Rome. And so we're gonna prove it. We're gonna put them in power. This is how this is gonna work. They had limited the scope of their religious practices. They had overtaxed the people in extraordinary ways. There had been abuse of power and all kinds of different things. And the people felt oppressed. And they said, one day our king is gonna come and we're gonna get a political liberator who's gonna lead the armies of Israel, who's gonna overtake the whole thing, overthrow the whole thing. And there will be a throne that gets established forever with everlasting peace. That's who our Messiah is. That's who's coming. And Jesus comes riding in on a donkey as if to signify to everybody, the moment has arrived. This is huge. This is why they all come out. This is why this all happens. And they chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, we hear about this and it's weird. Why are people waving palm fronds at a guy on a donkey chanting, Hosanna? because we don't have a bunch of messianic prophecy in our heads from the time that we were little kids. And because most of us didn't actually probably even know what Hosanna meant, though we've sang it in the song a few times here and there until maybe even this morning, right? But this was such a big deal for them. I want you to think about if your king had come, if your hopes were like right there, this thing that you had been waiting for, that your parents had been telling you about, that their grandparents had been hoping for, this long history of hope is now, it's here. And they've realized it and they say, it's go time. And it's supposed to be this really beautiful moment. And this brings us to why I think Palm Sunday is still a little bit weird. Even now, the way we celebrate it, the way we talk about it. Palm Sunday gets referred to as the triumphal entry. Maybe you've heard of this before. In theological terms, it's like, this is the triumphal entry. This is when the king enters into Jerusalem to the fanfare deserving of the king and everybody recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. And this is the thing. And so it's supposed to be this amazing celebratory moment across the United States, probably globally, as far as Christians are going. Today, there's gonna be celebratory services about the coming king and he's here and all of the good stuff that's there. It's a celebration of Jesus as king. But the truth is, it should almost be called the great misunderstanding. When you look at Palm Sunday, was celebration happening? Yes. Were people laying palm fronds on the ground? Yes. Were they chanting these messianic prophecies in these scriptures and seeing it all arrive at their doorstep and, and just hoping so much in it? Yes. But there was a profound misunderstanding between the person riding upon the donkey and the people cheering from the sides. There was this huge misunderstanding that existed. You see, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, Everyone thought he was going to be the great conqueror to Rome. It's going to finally set this world straight. But he wasn't. It's not what he did. Everyone thought that he'd be the great political liberator, right? He's going to take the Jewish political system and overhaul it. And he's going to take the Roman political system and he's going to oust it. And he's going to create one place with a temple at its center, the way God wants it, the way things are supposed to be forever. But he didn't. In fact, Jesus didn't express much interest in the political Everyone thought he would be a general who would lead the armies of Israel, right? To overtake their enemies. But he, he didn't command an army. He didn't become a general. He wasn't that. 
Instead, when Jesus enters into Palm Sunday and he enters into Jerusalem, what he begins to do is Jesus begins to get really, really clear about who he really is and what he really wants. And this actually starts to tick a lot of people off. They get really angry. They get really, really frustrated about this. And so consequently, just days, you guys, this happened on a Sunday, just days, Days after people are are chanting with full hope and expectation, our King has come, our Savior is here, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their verbiage changes, their vocabulary changes, and in just a couple of days, they begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him, the very same people. And we're not even talking a full seven days. And I find myself looking at that going like, how did we get from Palm Sunday to Good Friday in just a few days? How do we get from Palm Sunday to Good Friday in just a few days? Because doesn't that seem crazy? Doesn't that seem like the quickest turnaround ever? I mean, and this wasn't just where people were like, I think I'm going to change my vote. I mean, this is people with full hostility, full anger, working themselves into a frenzy to the point that they're about to riot if somebody won't kill Jesus on Friday. And all of this is happening on Sunday. This is pretty stark. I want to offer an answer to that question, how do we get from Palm Sunday to Good Friday in just a few days? And it's because this, I think the truth is, is if Jesus were to show up today and step into our modern context, I find myself asking the question, would we be different? Now, granted, we probably wouldn't crucify him. Nobody's doing that anymore. But there's just a piece where when you look at this message And you look at these people and you look at this moment in scripture, right? And the following week that happened there, would would we be triggered the same way? Would we find ourselves getting frustrated and turning towards that same thing? Could we do the same thing again? I honestly believe that we have to be open to at least the possibility of that. And we should ask ourselves some questions. Here's the answer I want to provide to how do we get from Palm Sunday to Good Friday in just a few short days. It's this. Instead of taking over politically, Instead of challenging the rulers of the day and setting people straight, in the days between Palm Sunday and Easter, Jesus made it clear that the thing he was taking on was the Jewish religious system with the temple at its very center. And you look and you're like, okay, why is that a big deal? Oh, that's a huge deal, you guys. Because he messed with their religion. What happens when somebody messes with your religion? Think about this right? When you mess with someone's religion, because that's what the temple signified. The temple was the place where all religious practices were essentially performed so that you could be right with God. The temple was the place that let you know that you were good and right. The temple's where you followed the law. The temple's where you went to to obey the word of God because there were commands in the word of God about what the temple should be and what you ought to do with it. There were all of these things. The temple was like the center of the Jewish religion. When you mess with someone's religion, you mess with their core beliefs about who they are and who God is and how this whole thing works. It's a really big deal. When you mess with someone's religion, you mess with their sense of security that they are okay in this world and that they will be okay in life to come. That's a big deal, right? A lot of significance there. When you mess with someone's religion, you mess with their sense of certainty that they know who's right, that they know who's wrong, and that they know what they have been doing is right so that they can go on living a life where they feel secure. When you mess with any one of those things, any of them, even just part of those things, do you know if you were to put somebody under a brain scan and mess with them in this way, the place that you would see light up in their brain is the equivalent to somebody holding a knife in front of them and threatening them with it? It's that level. It's the same process. 
Friends, how did we get from the celebration on Palm Sunday of the triumphal entry to the crucifixion on Good Friday? I want to phrase it this way. I think the people finally realized that Jesus didn't come to do what they'd wanted, but he came to undo what they already had. And that was very disconcerting for people. And the people that it was most disconcerting for were religious people, to be honest, because they were the ones holding these things overtly. And so on this Palm Sunday, I wanted to do two things. First, I wanted to explain Palm Sunday and why it's significant. If we're going to talk about it every year, we should kind of have an understanding of like, this is what happened and this is why they did this thing. Just food for thought. And that's why I took a moment just a little bit ago to, to walk through some of that and talk about it. But second, I want to use the remaining time we have to look at this moment right after Palm Sunday that illustrates the significance of what Jesus is beginning to undo, that helps us understand how we got to Good Friday. But here's the deal. I want to walk through that because I think there's a beautiful hope in this. You know, the goodness of Jesus isn't that he's constantly being like, well, I'm just going to deconstruct your world and take everything away from you and uh, mazel tov. Right? Like he, he doesn't, it's not that. Every time he says like, you've heard it said, I'm going to deconstruct that. But I say to you, I'm going to hand you something better, something more beautiful. And in this particular case, I'll give you the punchline. Jesus replaces the temple with himself. He takes away all the religious practice and all the religious certainty and all the religious security that the temple had to offer. And he said, instead of going there to place your faith and base your life, come to me. And I'm going to do something vastly different, vastly better. And I want you to see that here today. So I want to look at the passage that follows Palm Sunday. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 11. So Jesus rides in on a donkey. Immediately upon riding in on a donkey, it says this. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And then the day happens, the next day arrives. And the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. It's a weird moment. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. I'm going to pause there because I just want us to look at this little chunk of scripture here. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Where's the first place he goes? He goes to the temple. What's he do there? Just as he surveys the whole thing, takes a look around. But Mark wants us specifically to know that in this moment, Jesus goes straight to the temple and that he spends some time there. And then we don't know what else happened beyond that other than that he left and he went away and then he comes back the very next day. And where does he go again? to the temple. So you have this, I go to the temple, leave the temple, return to the temple. And then there's this weird little moment sandwiched in between here where Jesus pauses to yell at a tree. And maybe he didn't yell, but he certainly doesn't talk kindly to the tree, right? Where he's frustrated with the tree. It's this weird moment. Now we might be tempted to shrug our shoulders and gloss over this thing and just be like, I mean, yeah, it's weird. Like, let's just move on to where he clears out the temple. I love that story. Like that, Jesus got crazy right there. And gloss over this whole thing, but this is really important. Mark put this here, this moment sandwiched between two temple experiences in this really small way for a very specific reason. I want to explain that. See, the fig tree, the nation of Israel, is one of the most important trees. And it's in part due to its deep symbolism. Uh, The fig tree stands proverbially for peace and security. So when Jesus stops, there's a reason he, he approaches this particular tree. When it cues us in, then he sees a fig tree in leaf. There's a reason that Mark is like, I want you to know what kind of tree it was. And it's to cue his readers who would have understood at that point in time. Okay, this is going to be about 
how we anchor our peace and where we find and source our security. There's something significant about this particular moment that's here. And then Jesus approaches the tree and it says that as he approaches it, that it was in leaf, but there were no figs upon it. Now here's what that means. If you see a fig tree that has leaves, but has no fruit on it, figs essentially produce fruit, I think twice a year in Israel. And so when you, what happens to the fig tree is unique in that the fruit is produced before the leaves ever bud. And so you get this unripened fruit that begins to produce itself and then the leaves follow suit and the whole thing starts to mature together. So if you walk and you see a fig tree and all it has on it are some leaves and you look and there's no fruit, there's only a couple of possibilities that could be. One is, is that somebody walked along and picked the young unripened fruit and that it was already eaten, that it was gone. The other possibility is that this tree, it looks healthy, but that it's bearing no fruit. This tree ought to have figs on it, but it's bearing no fruit. There's some people that took like a really deep dive in fig fruit tree patterns because that's their job apparently. Um, and, and they believe that during this time of year, there would have been these really small figs that would have been on here. And what Jesus is expecting is to see something that's not fully matured, but that would have been ripening at that particular point. You can get lost in all of it. Either way, he walks up to a tree that should have had fruit on it, seems healthy, looks healthy, but it's not producing any. And then he has this weird reaction to the tree where he curses the tree. He condemns the tree. When was the last time you walked out and condemned a tree? Don't, it's weird. But Jesus does this. He walks out and he condemns a tree. And he speaks to the thing and he says, may no one ever eat of you again. And then Mark says, and the disciples heard this. This is an object lesson for his disciples. So let's look at this. Maybe Jesus, there's a couple possibilities here, guys. Maybe Jesus was just really hungry at this particular point in the day to the point that he became like hangry and he walks out and he's like, I really just need some fig fruit. That's what I need to satiate myself. And he walks out and he sees there's no fig fruit on the tree. And then he just gets so mad at the whole thing that rather than take his aggression out anywhere else, he curses the tree and is like, I'm done with you and may no one ever eat of you ever again. And then Mark looks at the whole thing and is like, that's hilarious. I'm going to include this in my very short and concise gospel because I just think it's funny. Or... (laughs) Mark sandwiches this moment between one temple experience and another because there's deep symbolism here and he doesn't want us as readers to miss it. Jesus stops to reflect upon the fig tree because that fig tree is symbolic of the temple itself. It's the place where you source your peace, where you source your security. It is the epicenter of Jewish life and values. It is the very thing that you went to to make sacrifices, to make yourself right, to know that you were good, to know that you were on the right path. When you were wrong, you went there to correct yourself. When you needed to learn, that's where you went. The scholarship, the best Jewish scholarship resided in the temple. And even if there were people out of town who were studying and doing great things, they traveled to the temple to begin teaching. This is why Jesus was able to walk into the temple and just have open session all these times, despite the fact that he he doesn't reside there, so to speak. Like the fig tree, the temple was a place that you went to to find security, to find peace, to source your behaviors and your understanding and different things so that you could know that you were okay, you were good with God and all was fine in the world and you could go about your life. And Jesus looks at the fig tree during a time where fruit should be beginning to grow and he says, this thing looks healthy, it's got leaves on it, but there's no fruit here. And his response to that is, may no one ever eat of this thing again. People have been studying the Old Testament in the temple. I want you guys to realize this. Like, 
don't just hear this as people sitting here in this room now. I know the temple seems like a long way away. The first century seems like forever and a day ago, right? Like you, you have a hard time even wrapping your head around different culture and moments. But just think about this. The temple was the place where you went and you learned about the Old Testament and you heard the word of God and they'd open the scroll and they'd read to you these different things. And the temple was the place where you went to worship God. The temple was the place where you interacted with priests who, who sacrificed for you in, in moments where you needed like to be made right with God. The temple was where you went to acknowledge your sin. The temple was where you went for correction. The temple was where you went for all of it. It's the center of the Jewish religious experience. And Jesus looks at a fig tree and says, there's no fruit on this thing and then condemns the thing and says, may no one ever eat of this tree again. He doesn't say, may everybody take a breather and go find something else. He says, never, ever again. This is a really big deal. And then what does he do? He goes straight to the temple from there and he starts to clear the place out. And he does a whole bunch of things between, that, that add to this between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. But do you see how big that statement was? May no one ever eat of this thing again. And do you see how inflammatory it was? You see that? I mean, they would, have, they would have heard that and understood that as though Jesus walked into a room like today and said, may no one ever do a Bible study again. And you'd be like, hold on. I thought you were the Messiah. I'm just saying that's what he would say. It just, it hit them in that degree. Do you know what I mean? It, it hit them to that level. That's how you'd feel. Jesus was telling them the temple doesn't have the spiritual food you've been looking for. You've got to find another food source. It's not producing what it's meant to. It looks good. It seems right, but it's not doing the job. Let's be clear about what he's not saying. Jesus isn't saying, stop trusting the rules of man and start trusting the word of God. No, the temple is where you went. It was based on the word of God. It was based on what people understood about that. It was full of scripture and scripture was revered and celebrated. This isn't Jesus saying, you've fallen victim to false teaching and you need to leave that temple and go to another temple where you can get your needs met. That's not what he's saying here. The temple was the center of the best teaching. The temple was the place of incredible Jewish scholarship and where multiple rabbis and people came and taught and did all of this. They also weren't saying you need to be more traditional or you need to practice more sacred ways or you need to find a deeper way to connect and worship somehow. All of that was happening in the temple. It was all there. He's messing with people on a very deep level here. This is Jesus saying. That's what he's not saying. This is what Jesus is saying. If you want to see the fruit of God show up in your life, if you want to see what the New Testament describes as the fruit of the Spirit, and you want that to become actually real in your life in a way that tethers your life to God, in a way that tethers your life to Him, if you want to see the love of God become real in you and around you, then you've got to base your life on something else. You've got to eat at a different restaurant when it comes to the way you think about this thing spiritually. And of course, the thing he's talking about is himself. Jesus then curses the fig tree, says, may no one ever eat of you again. And think about this, just days later, he sits in an upper room with all of his disciples, right? This is the Last Supper. Many of you have seen the painting, right? He sits in an upper room with his disciples and they're having a Passover feast. And Jesus passes out bread and Jesus passes out wine. And he looks and he says, this is my body, speaking of the bread broken for you. And he says, this is my blood poured out from you, for you. And he says, take and eat these things, right? Consume me. Jesus is literally saying, the thing you've been getting from the temple, I want you to now source from me, right? Not full cannibalism, you guys. <laughs> he, he's saying, the spiritual meal that you've been getting nourished here, I have that for you. 
I want to live and die and rise for you. I want to walk with you. I want to commune and have relationship with you. This is what I want for you. Consume me. This is Christ beginning to say with greater and greater clarity that he is the food source that people have needed despite what they have been going to. And he's telling them, base your life on me. That's such a strategic way that I wanted to say that. And the reason why is it's not just believe in me. He's not just saying, just acknowledge who I am. Just like give your intellectual assent to like who I, who you think I am. No, he's, this is the idea of basing your life, centering your life on him and in him and allowing yourself to unfold in a dynamic relationship with Jesus. This is way deeper than religion. This is way deeper than spiritual tradition and practice. This is way beyond ritualistic things. This is something really, really deep and really, really personal. He's saying, don't trust the temple. The temple looks great, but it can't do what you need it to do. Now, many of you are probably sitting here today and being like, oh, that's fascinating. Thank you for this piece of Jewish history and what Jesus was ultimately trying to convey here. And that's all well and good. What do I do with that? (laughs) You ever have that moment where you're just like, what do I do with this with my own life? Like, why does this matter today? Why do I even bother talking about this in a Palm Sunday moment here? I'm going to be really honest with you. I've been struggling all week long and I've been struggling even this morning to try to find the words to really be clear about this. So I'm going to try my best, but I, I want to convey, try to convey this to you by using a story here. I was a high school pastor for several years here at this church. It's uh, so a while ago, um, but I, I was, and I, I love high schoolers. Uh, they make me happy. Um, and I just, I love their questions and their openness and their tenacity and all of the things. So when I first became a student ministry pastor, I was relatively new and I just pretty much gotten out of college. Uh, and the college that I'd gone to has a slogan. That slogan is the name you can trust. It's a heck of a slogan, is it not? The name you can trust, as in like, if someone graduates from here, you'll like it, take it to the bank. Like, that's what that piece is. So consequently, what ends up happening is you go through this whole long process, and then the very last paper that you have to write at the school that I went to is a doctrinal position paper. And you take every piece of doctrine, every piece of theology, and you write a massive paper. And everything has to be anchored and rooted in spiritual and biblical text. And you have to argue why this is and what you think. If they read it and they don't agree with your stance or your position on these potential things, you didn't graduate Instead, you got to rewrite, and you got to rewrite the thing again until they finally agreed with it, and then you could graduate. Why? Because it's the name you can trust. Do you see? And so I had just finished going through that whole process, writing all of these things. Now, I grew up in a church and in church experiences where I didn't know all kinds of different doctrines and all kinds of different what's called hermeneutics or Bible study methods of right and wrong and all these different things. And so when I went to school, I learned all this stuff and I thought, oh my gosh, people need to know all of this so they can know what's right, so they can do what's right. And then I got into youth ministry and I was like, let's teach kids. This is what they need to know. And I devoted my time and energy into doing this. And I strategized it and we used small groups and we did all kinds of things here at this church. I did all kinds of this stuff. And then I had this moment, and it's not just this one moment, but this was a big one for me. Several years ago, a long time ago, I was riding in a van with a group of students on the way back from a Mexico trip where we'd gone down and built houses in Mexico for some people. And it was a beautiful trip, a beautiful experience, and, and I was so proud of these students. And we're driving back, and there were two seniors in the van, and I hear them talking, and they're both going to go to the East Coast for college. And they were talking about what that was going to be like. And they said, you know, I just, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And I, I looked back at them and I was like, hey, I know you guys, because they've been super plugged in. These people were like student leaders. They had been connected and been so highly involved and helped us do so many things through middle school all the way through high school. 
And, and so I, I just look back at them, you know, because I'm up in the front seats and they're sitting in the back. And I was just like, hey, you know, if you guys ever need help finding a church, I'd love to help you. It's, hard, it's really hard to start in a new place and be connected somewhere and then not be connected somewhere else if you've ever done that. You know, it's hard. I said, I'd love to help you um, or at least ask around or something. Like, I don't know. And then they both got really awkward. I don't do well with moments that are really awkward. I just kind of the guy who's like, why is this awkward? So I said that. Why is this awkward? Why does this feel weird right now? And then they both sheepishly kind of looked at me and started to stutter over their words. And one of them said, well, we've been talking and the truth is, I think after we move away, I don't think I'm going to need church anymore. And I was like, tell me more about that. I'm very interested in that statement that you just made, especially on the way back from a trip building houses with your church in Mexico. Like, talk to me about this particular thing. And then the other person said, yeah, we love it. We love church. Don't get me wrong. They're trying to, I think they're trying to make me feel better. Like, what you do matters. I'm like, that's fine. I get, I get that. But tell me what you think. And they said, yeah, I mean, we love it and we've been involved and we've, you know, it's been super important in middle school and in high school for us. And we, but I feel like we really needed this in middle school and high school, but we've learned all that we need to know. And I just don't think I need to take it into the next journey of my life. I don't even take this. And I said, what's this mean? Can you be clear about when you say the word this, like, what's that look like for you? What are you, what are you articulating there? And they said, well, I mean, I believe in Jesus and I read my Bible and, you know, I've been going to church and I have all these things. I just... I don't think I need that anymore. And I said, all of it? He said, yeah, more or less. I said, wow, that's really interesting. When did you come to this? And I said, I think it's just been something I've been starting to realize as I've been trying to decide what to do with my life. I wish I could tell you that that was just one conversation that I have had in my life, but that's not. It's a lot of conversations with a lot of young people. And you know what? It's actually a lot of conversations with a lot of grown adults. There's this thing that happens. It's almost like my experience in Palm Sunday where you look and you get good at being a part of a religious thing and you go and you engage with it and you learn the practices and you learn kind of what the beliefs are supposed to look like and you learn how to fit and how to make it work and it feels good and it develops you and you needed that in a moment. And then so often, so many people get to a space in their life where it just feels like you outgrew it. Have you ever been there? Or where you start asking the question, do I need this? Do I want to take this with me on the next leg of the journey? This question's getting asked way more often than people ever vocalize, friends. Crazy thing with COVID, when churches all started to pause and people all started to take breaks, I mean, you can see research on this across the United States where people all began to ask, like, do I want to come back? Do I? It's, it's that question. Is that thing still important? Like, I stopped my pattern behavior for about two seconds and long enough to actually see the thing for what it is. Do I really want this? Does this matter for my life? Is this important? The truth is, religion can only take you so far before you're destined to outgrow it or just put your head down and keep recommitting to it. But it doesn't blossom and produce the kind of life that is dynamic and moves with you into the next stage and phase of life as you walk and as you journey. These girls were so eloquent and articulate as they began to express this, but I've started to realize more and more as I've thought about this, is that so much of what Jesus was doing back at this, good, er, at this Palm Sunday moment as he moves through and begins now teaching at the temple when he talks to a fig tree, is he's talking to the people about all the religious practice and all the religious ritual and all the religious things that they were doing and their confidence simply because they attended the temple and because they participated in this very specific way that that was just all life was and that it was good to go. And what he's doing is he's instead kind of cutting that off at the, at the knees, so to speak, and he's saying, I want to invite you into something far more dynamic, far more personal, and it's a life with me. 
You know, it's funny, talking through this, the very first questions that people ask is like, well, what does that even look like? Where do I go? And you want to know the hardest thing about this, guys? And I'll be really honest with you. If you say, so where do I go? I'll go, I actually don't know. I don't know what Christ personally wants to do in each and every one of you. I don't. But what does it mean? I know that he's with you. I know that he loves you. I know that there's grace and upon grace upon grace for your life. I know that you can trust all of those things and base your life in it as you begin to make decisions, as it begins to open you back up. I know that you're going to mess that up and I'm going to mess that up too. And we're going to get confused and weird sometimes. And that's what's so important about having a community of people that come around you to say, I know I'm wrestling with this particular thing too. Or yeah, that's happened to me before. Or, yeah, that's never happened to me. Can you share what's happened with you? Because I need to learn from somebody in these moments where we help one another grow as Christ does something real and active and dynamic in each of our lives. This is more than religious practice. This is more than ritual. This is more than simply knowing on the dotted line that like I go to this thing and everything's fine. This is more than looking like a well-behaved, well-to-do Christian that everyone's like, that person. This is about you and Jesus. This is about relationship. And it's weird because I have a relationship with my wife and she'll just look back at me and be like, don't do that. And I'll be like, okay, I won't do that. And she'll be like, hey, please go do this. And I'll be like, yeah, I should probably go do that, right? Like I can have that kind of dynamic. It doesn't, it goes both ways. <laughs> but like there's a dynamic that's there. I know there's times where you go, God, what do you want me to do? And it's silence. And there's these moments where you're like, okay, so what do you trust? Those are the moments it's easiest to go back to ritual and to the temple and to the practice and be like, well, it says that if I do these things and I do this, then here's the end result and I can trust it like an equation and that's just gonna happen. It's so hard sometimes, guys, to just stop and say, God, I think you're working in me and I know you're working around me in great faith. What is, where is it that you wanna take me? And then you don't hear an answer to that. And so you actually have to make a decision based on your faith and based on your trust of grace and your value and all the things that are there about what you think is best and trust Christ to move and shape and guide you. This is what Jesus is pointing them towards when he says, leave behind the temple system and start rooting and basing your life in me. He's not undermining scripture. He's saying, no, all of scripture points to me. In fact, if you go to scripture, go to scripture because you're trying to follow Jesus but not because you're simply basing your whole life on this thing so you don't need Jesus. Go to ritual, go to tradition because it unfolds a certain beauty about Jesus and what it is to live in a dynamic relationship with Christ. You just don't base your life on those particular things, friends. For me, those conversations, and I've had hundreds of them since then, have transformed me in a pretty significant way, I'll be honest. And some of you have known me over the years and you've probably seen some stuff shift and change over time. I'm honest about that. You know, I used to sit down with people and I'd ask people, like I'd sit with students who I mentored or an adult would be talking to me or something and the questions that I would ask used to be something along the lines of, what's your time in the Bible looked like this week? And it's because I was like, everybody needs to be reading their Bible and everybody needs to be understanding this. I love the Bible. I love the scriptures. I'd love for you to read it. But I don't ask that question anymore. Not that same way. You know what I've shifted to? The question I now ask is, how are you following Jesus and experiencing him in your life? Let's use the Bible to inform that process as opposed to the other way around. I used to ask people, what are you struggling with and what do you think you should do differently, right? What's the behavior in your life that God wants you to change and what are you gonna do about it? That's what I used to ask. I don't really ask that anymore. Now I ask, what's Christ doing in your heart these days? What's Christ teaching you? What's that like for you? These are questions if you and I were to sit down that I wanna ask you, that I ask myself on a regular basis. 
I used to sit down and I'd debate doctrine with people and be like, but this is right and this is true and here are the verses and what do you think? And I can, under, I can like pick apart that argument and I used to care a lot about doing that. I, I don't as much anymore. I'm more concerned now with, is this gonna help you, me, come to look more and more like the person of Jesus Christ? Is this gonna help us love other people like Jesus in a dynamic way that becomes a gift of the world? And are we living out of this same love and embracing this for ourselves? Or what do we, have, what do we need here to more fully stand in that particular thing? Because there's something good and beautiful in it. Friends, it's not that I learned to simply ask different questions and employ a different strategy because something wasn't working. And this, I don't want you to miss this. I think the thing that I've learned is the hope I have for this whole church, and it's this. I've learned to stop tethering people to the Christian religion and instead to start tethering people to the person of Jesus Christ. That's a different thing. That might sound subtle, but it is not. It's the very thing that got people so activated that they would shift from a moment where they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to another moment where they would begin just days later saying, crucify him, crucify him. Let's just remove the equation. It's a very complicated thing, isn't it? Because when you mess with someone's religion, you mess with a lot. You know, I want to ask you today, what would it be like if you began to wrestle with some of those same questions? What's Christ doing in you? And where is he taking you? What would it be like if instead of saying, I read the Bible every day because I read the Bible every day, what if it was because I'm trying today and tomorrow and the next day to see what Christ has for me and to follow Jesus in some way. And so I'm trying to look for that, trying to learn about that, trying to be more well-informed and just figure that piece out so that I can become more and more like Christ. What would it look like if instead of being like, guys, nobody eat before dinner, like, or nobody just go and eat dinner because you need to pray. If you pause and we're just like, you know, in this moment, I'm trying to trust Christ for my food, trust Christ for my sustenance and my well-being and knowing that God has me today and tomorrow. This is more than just food right now. There's something here. And can we pause to just pray and thank him for these particular things? Do you see the difference this begins to make, friends? What happens is this stops being a thing that just meets your moment so that you can get through it. And it starts to become a dynamic that actually takes you somewhere beautiful in this life. You don't outgrow that dynamic. It grows with you, moves into each step of your life so that more and more you come to look like the person of Jesus Christ. And do you know why that matters so incredibly much? Because that is an absolute gift to this world, that you would give love away freely and be a powerful expression of the goodness and the love and the power of God. That is a powerful life. That is an amazing trajectory, and God is taking you somewhere. Happy Palm Sunday, friends. Let me pray. God, we just come before you here today, Lord. And I know that sometimes we trust in the temple, so to speak. I know sometimes we just do ritual and tradition, and it just kind of becomes what this thing is, Lord. But I pray that you'd open our eyes to what Christ wants to do in us and through us. I pray that you continue to just anchor us in relationship to your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the Easter story. I thank you for Holy Week. I thank you that Jesus has died and risen again. I thank you that there's hope and beauty and potential. And Father, as a church today, may you open our eyes to the fact that you are taking us somewhere as individuals and help us with great courage and great hope to walk along with you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.